0: Today's is a special day as it's Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to the moms who are here today. You know, Mother's Day is an interesting day. It's a day of celebration. For those who are moms, we celebrate with you and we say thank you. I don't think thank you is enough. It's impossible for us to pay back moms, isn't it? And it's impossible enough to express our appreciation. And so it's interesting because we celebrate it. But for some moms or for some ladies, this is a day of hurt. Sometimes Mother's Day can be hard because you've lost your mom. And that's even for even for men. Sometimes it's just difficult to think my mom's passed. And so today we're sensitive to that. For some women in this room, Mother's Day is hard because you desire to be a mom. You've uh, maybe have lost a child, and maybe you have infertility issues. And so we're sensitive to those in this room that also have that kind of thing. But today we celebrate moms, and we also want to. Be sensitive uh, with those who this day is a hard day. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to pray a prayer of blessing over our moms today. Father, we are so thankful for the moms that sacrifice and give of themselves and set aside their agendas to take care of the children and even the husband and take care of the home. God, words could not express our thankfulness for our moms. And, and what our moms t- mean to us. And God, what our moms have done. And especially, Lord, thankful for the moms who instill faith in us. Instill, instill in us a belief in Jesus Christ. And God, we want to pray for those today that uh, Mother's Day is hard. Maybe it is because I've lost my mom. Or maybe Mother's Day is hard because of the desire to be a mom and not able to have children. God, we lift those ladies up to you. Lord, we pray that you would comfort their heart. We pray, Lord, that you'd be able to help them celebrate for those who are moms at the same time while they struggle with some pain and difficulties and trials of their own. God, today is a special day because it's the day that we come to worship. It's a special day, Lord, because the church gathers. We get a chance to come together to encourage one another, pray together, to, to lift up songs, to commune together. Uh, Father, to hear instruction from Your Word. And so, Lord, we pray that You would speak in this room right now. We pray, Lord, that You would use, as as Paul says, the foolishness of preaching to change lives. And God, I pray You do that in this room right now. Pray for Your Holy Spirit to move. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. 1965. During the month of July, one song held the number one spot for four weeks in a row? Does anybody know what that would be back in 1965? Think for a moment. What would be the song that held it for four weeks in a row? Any clues? Some of you guys are going, I have no idea. I wasn't born then. I wasn't born then either. But this song is still popular today when it comes across the radio. By the Rolling Stones. Come on. Say that again. Satisfaction. Satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction. Satisfaction. 1965, it came out. It held the number one spot for four weeks in a row. And it's amazing <laughs> because most of us know the chorus, but how many of us really know the verses? And so I'm preparing. I said, What is that song about? And you start listening to it. They sing about uh, the voice on the radio that is talking brings me no satisfaction. Sorry, Ryan. <laughs> they. Um, they're singing about commercials on TV telling you how to get your shirt white, and it brings me no satisfaction. Uh, it's singing about men who are not real men unless they smoke the same kind of cigarettes as me, and then it brings no satisfaction. And of course, they sing about being on a losing streak trying to get the girls, and it brings no satisfaction. And it goes on with, I can't get no satisfaction, and I won't sing for you, but I wanted to. But you've heard the song. I mean, almost every wedding you go to, that song comes on. It's one to dance to. It's one to clap to. You go to a pep rally, a lot of times that song is played. Uh, I believe that song was a hit for two reasons. One, I think it was a hit because it's very catchy. has a very catchy beat, and the the instrumentation on it is just fun. It's one of those jingles that just when you hear it, you start tapping your toe to it, and it gets your attention. I believe, though, it was popular because it expressed... The culture of 1965, very accurately. People just weren't satisfied. And they come out with this big song that sings about can't get no satisfaction. Hit the culture right where they're at. And my, my thinking is this. <clears throat> I don't think things have changed much. In the year 2015... And I don't think the things changed much in the year 1975, or the year 1985, or the year 1995, or the year 2005. And that's why that song has stood the test of time. That even today, people sing it because we sing it and go, yeah, I kind of recognize that. Satisfaction seems to be so elusive for us, I think. I think it's something that a lot of us are chasing after, and we're looking for, and we don't even realize it. And I think we say and express things in our behavior sometimes that really shows I'm not satisfied. For instance, I hear people say things like, my life is empty. Or, or you watch people chasing after things of this life. Or some people say, I've got so much and yet something seems to be missing. I have a nice house and nice cars and my kids go to good schools, but there's still something inside of me that's missing. Or, or, or is this all there really is in life? There's more to it, our culture today, and even our culture that influences the church. We feel that way sometimes. We keep chasing for something else to fill a hole that's inside of us. Mother Teresa once said, "People in India are physically hungry. People in America are spiritually hungry. That makes people in India better off because Americans don't realize why they are starving." Are you starving today? Do you realize that maybe you are? And there continues to be this, this gnawing inside of us <coughs> for contentment, for a feeling that really satisfies so many people, including those who claim to be Christians, still echo McJagger's words that says, I can't get no satisfaction in the way we live our lives. Why? Why is it? God says the reason we suffer from dissatisfaction in life is because we are looking for it in the wrong places. We're chasing for it in areas of life that are not going to satisfy. Today we continue learning about how to win at life. How to build our lives upon a firm foundation, upon a solid rock that will stand the test of time, and not upon sand that will wash away when the storms come. Today we continue in that. Today we want to look at the fourth beatitude. Look what it says. Blessed blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Take that word blessed. We've been trying to explain that and what that means. I mean, definition, it means means happy. It means contentment. It means satisfied. it, It means being filled. I believe the first three Beatitudes, the poor in spirit, Mourn and meek. They are teaching us that we must empty ourselves. We must empty our ourselves if we're going to be blessed. We come to a point where we realize it's not all about me. And let me just say, in our social media world, that is harder and harder to do because our social media world typically is all about me. Look at me and look what I've done. Look at my selfie, look at my picture, look at my story, look at what I've been uh, trips I've taken, look at everything I've accomplished. And so social media feeds into our narcissistic society where all we do is focus on ourselves. And then these words of Jesus deal with you can't be all about you. You have to empty yourself. And so there's a challenge that we focus. And when Jesus says we're empty, then Then we can be filled. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. Let's dig a little deeper. We already listened to the scripture and the reading from the band and congregational reading. Let's learn a little bit together. What exactly does Jesus mean when he says to hunger and thirst? Now, most Americans today do not understand what it means to hunger and thirst. I understand we have a growing need in our culture today where hunger is growing. And Lord willing, that tide will turn back or change. And so there are some who are starting to experience hunger in our culture. That's why we have school backpack programs, etc., to help feed children. But what we experience in America in terms of hunger is nothing like a third world country. It's nothing that we don't know what it means to be without food or drink for days on end and to long for just the tiniest bit of nourishment. We, We don't know what that's like. But this would be the comparison. That's kind of hunger and thirst that Jesus was referring to. That you have stomach and hunger pain so much that you just want a a bite. The sentence structure here denotes an abnormal desire for food and drink. The words he uses are the strongest that can be employed to describe hunger and thirst, is what Jesus is talking about. And you know what? We are hungry and thirsty. The way Jesus describes it changes our perspective. And Jesus, he's talking to disciples and those others who gather out on that mountainside is really challenging their cultural thinking. He's saying, what are, you, what are you hungry for? And he's using words that tie to an image, a picture of real food. One of the stories told about the sinking on Titanic is about a wealthy woman who was about ready to get on a lifeboat. <clears throat> Pardon me. She's about ready to get on a white lifeboat, and as the story grows, as she's getting ready to step on, she says, wait a minute, wait a minute, I forgot something. Now most of us know the story of the Titanic, and we think, who cares, you forgot something, get on the lifeboat, you're there, don't go back. She says, i got to go back and get something. And the person helping her on, the mate there, said, you have three minutes. You must hurry. And so she runs back to her stateroom, past the money that was strewn about in the casino. She goes past that. She goes past all the antiques and past all the glassware in the dining room. She reached over her diamonds and gold jewelry on her dresser and ran back to the lifeboat, clutching on to four oranges that she saved for lunch. That would be a little bit more of a comparison. That's the kind of longing Jesus is talking about that kind of changes our perspective and position. The jewelries and the money and the gold, it means nothing in that situation. I need food. I don't know how long I'm going to be on this lifeboat. Our longing for righteousness is to be as a starving person desires food and as something perishing for drink. This is not a casual desire. My stomach is kind of growling between meals. This hunger and thirst is a kind that comes from desperation and that is something that we are to be desperate for is righteousness. And I just—I ask you this morning, what are you hungry for? What are you desperate for? What are you chasing after? <coughs> <clears throat> what does Jesus mean by this word righteousness? Really, to understand this whole little beatitude, just this one in verse 6, we've got to understand the word righteousness. The word Jesus uses here can have a couple of meanings. Have a couple of meanings. I think there's a primary definition. And I think there's kind of a secondary one. Both have relevance, though. Both tie in and properly help us understand this one passage of Scripture. First, this word righteousness would, would mean right living or living rightly. In the Greek culture, the word Jesus used here described a man who constantly observed his duty to gods and to men. To gods, not just the God, not the one and only God, but to gods and to men. It is a word of passion. It's a passion to do the the right thing no matter what. It describes someone who will take great risk, even when when doing what might be wrong or or seem like it's crazy. And to other people, in order to do the right thing, they they would have that kind of passion, I'm going to do what's right, even though everyone else says, I'm not sure it's right. In the simplest sense, righteousness is about absolute obedience. Uh, We are to hunger and thirst for our lives to be in line with God's design no matter what. In other words, no matter what I think, if I understand God's design and God's plan and God's emphasis, I will align my mindset and my will and my obedience to that. James 4 tells us to know the right thing to do and to not to do it is just as wrong as doing the incorrect act. So here, righteousness means doing right living or doing the right thing. I think that's one meaning of this word righteousness. I think there's a more prevalent, though, meaning or a more uh, accurate understanding of the word righteousness. This is one that we do not think about often. And I, I think it's a meaning that, that we so desperately need, though. In, in the original language for righteousness that Jesus uses here, it has to do more than doing the right thing, but rather emphasizes having a right relationship. It's the right relationship. We are to be intensely longing for a relationship with him. The, 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 word, the verb form, thank you, just set it right there. If I need it, I'll grab it. Uh, the verb form of, of the word means to justify. It means to recognize that God has justified us or has accepted us into a relationship with Him even though we do not deserve such a relationship, that He's justified us to make us right. This new relationship was offered at the cross. This new relationship offered at the cross where Jesus was sacrificed his, Himself, where Himself was sacrificed for your sin and my sin. You see, as long as you see relationship to Jesus just as a commitment of obligation, just as something that I have to do the right thing, living a life of duty, you'll never find satisfaction that is promised here. We want to be obedient. We want to do the right thing. But if that's all we're striving for, we're going to miss out on the satisfaction. Jesus doesn't just want right living. He desires a right relationship desires a right relationship with you and with me. The problem with only looking for doing the right thing is when we fail, we see God as a stern lawgiver. We see God as the judge on a bench who brings down judgment, and we don't see the relationship. (coughs) And as long as we think of God as that stern lawgiver, there can be nothing between us but distance, estrangement, and fear. Kind of like the picture of the father who's not a loving father, but the stern, aggressive father who has the rules over the household but does not demonstrate love. What happens? Distance, estrangement, and fear settles in. See, but once we know God is ready to accept us, once we know that, that He loves us and to forgive us, just as we are, the distance is replaced by intimacy. Estrangement is replaced by Love and fear by, I think, a grateful trust that we say, God, because of what you've done, I'm grateful and I trust you. I think the question for us to wrestle with, according to Matthew 5, 6, is do you long passionately and desperately, intensely for a right relationship with Jesus? I think sometimes we in the church can be stuck in our routine of what we do and we haven't stopped to think about where's my relationship with Jesus at? God, I believe, has always emphasized intimacy over just obedience. Now, the hard thing for us men is we hear that we're intimacy and we're like, huh, preacher, quit talking about that. But guys, we desire that with our children if you have kids. It's not the word we necessarily use, but it's a closeness and you want to be close with your children and God desires that closeness John 14 15 says if you love me notice relationship there factor if you love me obey my commandments it wasn't obey my commandments cuz I am God obey my commandments cuz I'm stern and come down and whip you and beat you and throw you up obey my commandments because you love me and we know as parents and moms on mother's day I know you desire your children to obey you You don't want them to obey you because you've had to threaten or you're going to take away. You want them to obey you because I love my mom and I respect my mom. Ephesians 2 says, For we are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And sometimes we just stop right there. But I think we miss the relationship part. Because verse 10 is just important. It says, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. He loves us. He saved us. It's by His grace that He did that. But at the same time, He's given us responsibilities and has shaped us. His workmanship to do good works. You see the relationship factor? There's relationship that goes on. It's not purely out of a cold commitment or an obligatory obedience, but it's because we're grateful for what He's done and who God is in our, in our lives. We say, I want to obey. I want to do the right thing. I want to pursue righteousness. And please remember, (coughs) (coughs) if you get nothing out of this today, write this down in your notes. Christianity is not a religion. It's the box that the world throws us into. Christianity is not a religion. It's all about a relationship. See, religion is man-made. Religion is what can I do to get a God to love me. A relationship is about a man by the name of Jesus who has done his part by dying on a cross, and we do our part by, in response. It's a relationship. Jesus is saying, if you want to be satisfied, if you want to be filled then passionately, intensely, above anything else, long for a right relationship with me. That's what he's saying in his beatitude. So we learned some about it. How do we live this out? How how, how can we know if I'm really hungering for righteousness the way Jesus says? Is there some measurement stick? It's, I think, a, a simple evaluation, but sometimes harder to do. You can measure yourself by what you're longing for. But what's important to you? What are you passionate about? Now, please don't misunderstand me here. There are times you will long for the wrong things and you won't always do everything right. And all of us fall in that category. But Jesus is saying here that an increased longing for Him and a decreased longing for things of this world or things that are wrong is what will bring us to the point where we will be filled. Our walk with Jesus is not measured by perfection, but really by progress. I think we should be able to look back. We should be able to look back over the last five years and say, you know what? Look where I was five years ago my walk in Christ where I am today. Look where I was two years ago. Look where I was 10 years ago. We should see progress. We should see growth. We should see that. You know, I'm growing closer to him. I'm finding greater contentment in my life now than now that I know Jesus than when I didn't know Jesus. Or I'm finding more, greater contentment as I pursue him more. Notice Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who always live right, but rather who long rightly. It's not a thing about perfection. There are a lot of things that will not satisfy that people long for. And we could spend an hour probably talking about things that don't satisfy. But let me address two that I see growing in our culture today. Two lies that I think come directly from Satan that tell you, you chase this stuff and you'll be filled. The first wrong place where I think we look for satisfaction is in performance. And specifically at work and at school. Some of you here labor under impression that happiness is based on achievement. If I make more sales, if I put in more hours, moms and dads, let me give you a warning. Our children are under an awful lot of pressure in school. An awful lot of pressure, and for us to have expectations that their grade level is so stinking high, we put undue stress And teach him to chase after the wrong things. And trust me, I'm in that. I know I can get on a computer at any moment and look at my son's grades. And I can see, oh, he messed up one test and freak out that he had a 65% on one test while his grade in the class is an A. We do that to ourselves in the workplace. I gotta put in more hours, I gotta put in more time, I need to climb the corporate ladder, I gotta make more money. Listen to what Ecclesiastes says. So I turn in despair from hard work as the answer to my search for satisfaction. For though I spend my life searching for wisdom, knowledge and skill, I must leave all of it to someone who hasn't done a day's work in his life. You know what? What you're working towards is going to be left for somebody else. Somebody else to take over all your hard work. He inherits all my efforts free of charge. This is not only foolish, but unfair. So what does a man get for all this hard work? Days full of sorrow and grief and restless bitter nights. It is all utterly ridiculous. And that's why I chose to use the Living Bible on that. Other versions say it's totally meaningless. It's ridiculous. We chase after things of this world like crazy. And according to Ecclesiastes here, wisdom is, that stuff all is going to pass away. There's a second area in our culture, a second wrong place where I think we look for satisfaction, and that's in our possessions. Today there are more products than ever before that all say satisfaction, what is it? Satisfaction guaranteed. You see, you knew it. I didn't have to coach you at all. Satisfaction guaranteed. Has a has satisfaction guaranteed really worked? Do you know that according to the Patents Bureau, there are twice as many products on the market today than there were 10 years ago? Twice as many are people twice as happy? i don 't think so. People twice as satisfied, I, I believe not. Ecclesiastes 5:10 says, "He who loves money shall never have enough. The foolishness of thinking that wealth brings happiness. See, we think we need the new car. We think we need the bigger house. We think we need more in our bank account. Truth is, we, we don 't need all that to be filled. We need Jesus Christ. We need Jesus Christ. We, we may not say it. For for many of us, deep down, we believe that when I get enough money, my problems will be solved. Now, I, I'm not as old as some of you in here, but I have learned that the more money I have, it has not solved my problems. It hasn't. It won't do that. Those that are rich will tell you that's not true. They, they've got the money, and many still are not completely satisfied. Now, there are some who are rich and satisfied because they know Jesus Christ, but if you're rich and you don't know Jesus, you're not going to be satisfied. How are we filled? What's satisfied? So, what's the key to happiness? What's this key to blessing? Psalm thirty-seven four says, "Take delight in the Lord." That's what Jesus is saying here. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Take delight in the Lord. We need to stop looking for happiness and start looking for Him. Did you catch that? We we need to start look, stop looking for happiness and start looking. For him, happiness is not found. Happiness is not found. It is given. You can search for it all day long, you're not going to find it. It's given. The Bible repeatedly teaches that happiness is a byproduct of seeking God. Contentment is a byproduct of seeking God. Being filled is a byproduct of seeking God. So it comes back to our relationship of what are we hungering and thirsting after. Genuine joy isn't found by looking for. It's given when you find God. What are you trying to fill life with? And and notice that Jesus promises lasting satisfaction. The word he uses here for filled means to be stuffed to the point of contentment. The, the word he actually uses is that word that describes us when we say, I can't eat another bite. Kind of push yourself over the table, and then staying filled that way with the Lord. It, it's not temporary filling. Jesus is promising a complete satisfaction, and yet there are so many people I hate to admit, some right here in this room, that are discontented with life who are not satisfied because you haven't learned yet to hunger and thirst for righteousness and be filled with Jesus. I think for some, that's due to the fact that they've never heard about the radical search that Jesus gives here. For some, that's new concepts. For some who have heard it, they just don't know how to seek Him. For some who have heard it... So so let me close with (coughs) suggesting three things to do in order to thirst and hunger for Him. How we can be satisfied. First of all, recognize your real need. First thing we need to do is to recognize our real hunger. If there is a discontentment inside of you, if there is an unhappiness, if there is a hurting of your soul, recognize your real need. It's not hurting and saying the car will fill it. That new car will feel good for a month. That new house, the windows will, will get bad. The garage door is going to break. The, new, the, the things you put on a credit card, they're not going to fill you. Recognize your real need. What's missing in my life? God made us spiritual beings. We were made in His image. We were created to love Him, to know Him. And nothing, absolutely nothing will fulfill that gap. Nothing. And we continue to chase after the things of this life. Not people, not possessions, not prestige, not a man in my life, not a woman in my life, not a husband, not a wife not more kids, nothing except for knowing him. Jesus said, you want to be filled? Know me. You must recognize that you're a spiritual being and hunger for God. Number two, stop eating spiritual junk food. <clears throat> stop eating spiritual junk food. Stop spending your energies and wasting the majority of your time on things in this world that really don't satisfy. Put more energy in making your relationship with Jesus good and less on the things of this world. Let me ask you, let me ask you some tough priority questions. What do you read most? Reading some novels? Magazines? Internet websites? Blogs? What what do you read most? How much Bible time is included in the things that you read? How much time are you in God's Word? What, What do you watch the most? Stop and do an evaluation of what's on your television. Is it sports? Talk shows? CSI? Crime shows? Investigation shows? What's on your television screen that you're allowing into your mind and into your heart? Who are those that you go to for advice? When you need some help, are you going to your friend who's just a really good friend, but they know nothing about Jesus? Are you going to a wise Christian (coughs) and saying, help me? See, if you'll begin to fill your life with positive spiritual things, you know what you'll find? What you'll find is the more you get spiritually, the more you want. The more you receive the teaching of of God's Word, the more you're studying God's Word, the more you're hanging around with other Christians, the more you're allowing God to speak in your life, the more of it you will desire. Just start longing for it. So I, I encourage you, stop eating Spiritual junk food. And you say, well, Brian, that other stuff you mentioned, not spiritual. It affects your spirit. It impacts your spirit. It impacts who you are. Things that won't satisfy. Third, start looking to Christ for your satisfaction. Look what it says in John 6.35. 35, says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. You see, there are actually, I think, three stages of spiritual hunger. And you're probably on one of these stages. One is, is I, I might want God in my life. This is kind of the stage of a person who's just kind of seeking out, what, what is this God thing? What is this Christianity thing about? Where you're just kind of curious. Maybe you've been in church a little bit. Maybe you have some belief in a God, but you're not really sure. Relying primarily upon yourself. I'd encourage you, you need to go on to stage two. Because as long as you live in stage one where I might want God in my life, you're going to remain dissatisfied Stage two is where you get to a point you say, I know I need God in my life. Where, where you're here, you're poor in spirit, you know that, that you're not good, you mourn over times you've broken Jesus' heart, you want to live a life of meekness, surrendering to Him. But sometimes we don't even consider those things, and I don't think we'll get to hungering and thirsting for righteousness if we can't first empty ourselves, living out the meekness and the mourning and the brokenness we were talking about. I think the, the area of I need God in my life is a point where you have to get to the point to stop and say, I, I don't call the shots anymore. You get to the point that says, I'm not in charge. God, you're in charge. You get to that point. And then finally, stage three, you come to realization, i, I got to have God in my life. I can't survive without Him. I'm on the road to misery and death without God. There are a number of people who have been broken by a tragedy or adversity and finally come to the point where they understand their true need for God. But it doesn't have to go to that point. It doesn't have to take that to grasp it, the, the truth. You don't have to have a horrible accident or a devastating diagnosis in your life or, or broken relationships to understand, I, I need God in my life. Where are you at? Are you looking for Christ in In your life, are are you satisfied? See, please understand me. Your emptiness you have will not be filled by alcohol. Emptiness will not be filled by drugs, by money, by food, by people, by pleasure, by anything. If you're struggling with any kind of emptiness, (coughs) only Jesus can answer those. Are you sitting here today and have some discontentment in you? Sitting here today, maybe have a little bit of that gnawing inside of you, going, I'm missing something? Unhappy? Let me tell you, congratulations. You're in a great spot. You're in a perfect spot, because God's brought that hunger and that dissatisfaction to you in a way that you can choose Him so you can be satisfied. And you can be filled. Do you want to win today? You want life built upon a firm foundation or do you want life built upon a sandy foundation that will wash away? Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. After Him, for they will be filled completely and utterly satisfied. Heavenly Father,